We are in uh, our fifth week of this series that we've entitled The God Who Builds. Let me give you that definition of what we mean by The God Who Builds. Uh, As we've been walking through this book, we've seen this reality that God is faithful to remember and act upon His promises to build His people and His church for His glory. That that's what we've been looking at as we've been walking through the pages of Nehemiah, looking at Nehemiah and his life and what God has called him to do to be a part in rebuilding these walls in Jerusalem that lied in rubble and not just building those walls on his own, but actually rallying God's people who lived there in Jerusalem to be a part of that amazing work. And so before I read Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to read through this entire chapter here in a minute. And if you were here last week, I promise you this week's going to be a whole lot easier for me to read than last week was. Uh, But we're going to get to that in a second. I was thinking about uh, what we're going to read here in a moment in Nehemiah chapter 4. And and as I was thinking about that, and I'll share with you why I'm going to give this illustration in a second, I thought to myself, man, what are... What are teams out there, whether that's college or professional, that, like, what's the longest winning streak that there is? Just curious about that, because I couldn't really, I mean, I could come up with some, but I wasn't sure if that was uh, the longest winning streak. And I'm glad I actually researched this, because I came across this team that I had never heard of before. And maybe you're like me. I'm going to give you the name of the team. You ready for this? Here's the name of the team. Mount Union Purple Raiders. They're from Ohio. Anybody hear that team? Okay, like three. That's what I thought. Like, not a team. Like, if, if you told me, hey, guess what? On our schedule, we're playing the Mount Union Purple Raiders. I'd be like, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk. Because any team that names themselves the Purple Raiders, like, I would be like, man, you can't be really tough and be called the Purple Raiders. But lest you think that, let me give you what I found was interesting that through the 2015 season, so from 1994 uh, to 2015, the Mount Union football team has won 12 Division III national championships, 27 conference titles, which includes a streak of 24 consecutive conference titles through 1992, from 1992 through 2015. 15. Now, here's some of their notable winning streaks. Get ready for this. They have won, uh, they won 112 regular season games in a row from 2005 to 2016. Like, that's crazy. And then their head coach uh, for the majority of that time, whose name was Larry, and I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, Kurz, holds the record for the highest winning percentage for coaches with a minimum of 200 career wins. Here was his winning percentage, 90 or 0.929. So 93% was his winning percentage. It's pretty amazing. So fault on me for thinking the Purple Raiders were this cupcake team. Like 93% Winning percentage. Can you imagine being on that team, like walking out to a game? Like, it's just a foregone conclusion you're going to win. Like, like, who are we playing today? All right, just put a W up there. Like, what an awesome thing to be a part of of that team, right? To be a part of a team that has that winning percentage. Um, I thought of this other illustration. So last night, and if you're new with us, I promise you I don't give sports illustrations every week, okay? So if you're not a sports person, 
Don't, don't freak out right now. Uh, but last night, it was actually interesting. When I was, was being uh, interviewed to be a part of this church, some of you had the opportunity to ask us questions. And I thought this was interesting, that one of the questions that you asked was, are you a Wake fan, are you a Duke fan, or are you a North Carolina fan? What fan are you? I thought that was so crazy. Now I understand. And, and so I just happened to say, well... I think I said I'm a Michael Jordan fan, which really meant I like the UNC Tar Heels. So if you were in a cave last night, you don't realize this, but last night they played Duke. And so I was watching that game, and I was enthralled with with that game, and it was a good game, back and forth, a whole game, which it always is, right? And and so I actually DVR'd that game, because I wasn't sure, like, like I was wanting to be, I was being what a pastor should do on a Saturday night, look over his notes, right? So I was doing that. And so I wasn't sure I was going to be able to catch the game. So I DVR'd the game. Now, here's what I can tell you, because I actually saw, I actually had the opportunity to see the majority of the game. I was on the edge of my seat, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You know, Duke would score and then North Carolina would score and it'd go back and forth. Now, if I went home today and sat down and I watched that game and I hit play on the DVR, and I watched that game, I would have an entirely different reaction to that game. You say, why? Because I know the outcome of the game. Like some of you are like, you know when you record a game and, and, and you DVR a game and you're like, nobody tell me what the score is. Like you have the radio off, you don't want to mention it. If someone barely mentions it, you like run away. Like you don't want to know the outcome of the game. Why? Because you want to watch the game with the anticipation of not knowing who's going to win, right? So when I know the outcome of a game, and if you're not a sports person, let's talk about a movie. If you already know how the movie is going to end, then when you watch the movie again, you react totally different to it. Maybe not on the edge of your seat as much. Maybe you don't cry as much. Whatever it may be. Why? Because you know the outcome. And as we read Nehemiah chapter 4 today, before we even begin reading Nehemiah 4, I want you to understand this reality. You ready for this? Here's the reality that I want us to understand. That our God always wins. Say that with me. Our God always wins. Say that to the person next to you. Our God always wins. That's our reality. And if you've doubted that today, then I invite you to turn to the end of your Bible, specifically in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, so that you can be reminded today that our God wins. No matter how bad it looks today, the beautiful thing is that I can approach my life today and I can navigate through that knowing I already know the ending. So I don't need to flip out and go crazy when opposition comes my way, though I'm not minimizing that opposition. Don't hear me say that. But I need to be reminded of today, and I wonder if you don't need to be reminded of today, because you remember a few weeks ago, we passed out these cards. And on this card, it said, we had the definition of the God who build. And on that card, it had, I am praying that God will build. And we gave you an opportunity to write things down. And I wonder if you're like me today, that you've written those down a few weeks ago. And you've been praying over those things. You've been saying, man, I want to be set. I want to have my eyes and my focus set on what God wants to build in or through my life. And I wonder today, have you faced opposition? Probably have. 
And what we're going to see in the pages of the scriptures today in Nehemiah chapter 4 is that the children of Israel, now that they've committed to themselves, that you know what? We believe that God wants to use us to build. And we're going to, all of God's people, for all of God's work that we looked at last week, we're going to be a part of what God is building. We're not sitting on the sidelines. We're getting back in the game. And we're going to be a part of what God is building. And what we're going to find in, the, in, the, in this chapter of Nehemiah chapter 4 is that opposition is going to come. Opposition is going to come. So would you be find yourself in Nehemiah chapter 4? I'm actually going to read this entire chapter, okay? So let's start in verse 1. It says, now when Sanballat, you ought to remember that name from chapter 2. I was one of the haters, remember? Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall... He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, so he taunted the Jews. So he's making fun of the Jews as they were about building this wall. And look at verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? The first thing I want you to understand about the opposition's tactics, because opposition will come. Hear me on this, that opposition will either shrink our view of God or it will be an opportunity for us to see God's glory put on display. One of those two things. Opposition's either if we're going to allow it to shrink our view of God or we're going to see it as an opportunity for God to put his glory on display. Because here's the idea I want you to understand today as we read through the rest of these verses is that the God who builds is the God who's undefeated. Believe that, remind yourself of that today, that the God who builds is the God who is undefeated. He's never lost, he never will, he's victorious, he's perfect, and we see that reality today, and we embrace that reality today if we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the ultimate example that God always wins. Because when we thought, and the enemy thought, that our sin was too great for God to respond, God responded through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ put on human flesh. He lived perfection for you, a life I can't live. He died on the cross for my sin, paying the debt that my sin deserved, and he rose again three days later so that today we can declare in this room through song and now through his word that Jesus Christ is victorious, that God is undefeated. But when we set ourselves out to be committed to God, what do you want to build in my life? What do you want to build through my life? When we're committed to, to write on a card and say, God, I'm praying for you to do these things in my life, through my life, opposition's going to come. And I think one of the first ways that, op, that one of the first things that I see about opposition and its tactics is there's taunting. Don't you see that in verse three? Let's continue reading in verse three. Tobiah. I'm sorry, let's go up to verse 2. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? Now, Tobiah chimes in. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. He'll break down their stone wall. There's taunting. Haven't you experienced that in your life? That when you set yourself out to say, God, I'm going to submit to this in my life. I'm going to repent of this sin. I'm going to focus on you. 
I'm going to commit to what you want me to do. Maybe last week even, you're like, man, I'm not sitting on the sidelines anymore. I'm going to commit to what God wants me to do in this church, and I'm going to get involved again and get serving again. And I wonder if the taunts have already started in your thoughts. Well, you don't have time for that. I mean, look at what they do. They say, you're too weak. It says, what are these feeble Jews doing in verse 2? You're not strong enough. Don't you realize who you are? I found it interesting that in conversations that I've had throughout this series already, that one of the, one of the common themes is, is how many of us have gotten caught up in believing that God can't use us. Wait a minute. If I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm a child of the King. I'm his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Yeah, I'm too weak, but God's undefeated. He's my strength. You're too weak. I wonder if you're struggling with that thought still in your mind. Look what else do they say in verse 2. Will they restore it for themselves? Like the task is too big. Like how many of us are thinking that? Man, what you believe God wants you to do, whether that's something that he wants to do spiritually in your life and what you need to repent of and get right or a relationship that needs to be restored or whatever it is, and and the taunts are, whether in your mind or words from the outside, that's too big, it's too big. And what the enemy and the opposition in this text was attacking is, is they were attacking what God had called them to do. What about this one? Look at verse 3. We just... Or verse 2, he says, will they sacrifice? Like in verse 2, Sam Ballot says, will they sacrifice? Like, here's what they're doing. Seriously, worshiping God is insignificant. That's a battle that goes on every Sunday morning in every single home. Don't know if you realize that or not. Is worshiping God collectively? Ah, insignificant. No big deal. You know what I've found in all the years of ministry, and trust me, I was like born in the church. My dad was a pastor, okay? Is that there's something that can't be duplicated when God's people gather together collectively, all together, and sing to him and open up his word and incur- that cannot be duplicated anywhere else. And what I find interesting is one of the threats that the enemy, that the opposition, opposition gives to the children here in, of Jews the, in Jerusalem is... What are they going to do? They're going to sacrifice. Worship is insignificant. You know where they were attacking? They were attacking God's character. Is God going to do this for them? <laughs> no way. And look at what else the taunts are. Look, did you just notice verse 3? They attack what they're building. Like sometimes the taunts that we struggle with in our, in our mind or maybe words that are said to us from the outside is, man, what God is doing in your life isn't that much. Isn't that much. It's not making a difference. What's really being done? You struggle with that? Because what I find interesting is that the taunts attack what God is doing. What God is doing. Now let's keep reading. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 4. He says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. So Nehemiah, in response to these taunts, he goes to God. He says, Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captive. Do not cover up their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So here's what Nehemiah is not doing. He's not telling these people figuratively to go to hell. That's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is, is God, may your justice, may their sin not be unpunished. May they come to grips to see what they're doing is sin and is wrong. That's what the, the, the vein of what Nehemiah is praying. Now look at verse 6. I love how simple this phrase is, but how profound. So we built the wall. All this taunting, all this opposition, all this doubt, we pray, and we got after it. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now look at verse 7. But when Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, so all the haters, all the doubters, all the opposition, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, so they heard that their threats weren't working. And that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That's a second tactic that I see in this text of the opposition. Not just taunting, but threats. But threats. See, here's how I define threats. An unknown circumstance that could, keyword, could bring harm to you, those you love, or the work that God has called you to accomplish. I mean, we read it right in verse 7, like when they heard that the taunting wasn't working, they said, hey, we're going to come and we're going to actually fight against Jerusalem. And the purpose of is we want to cause confusion. See, the way that threats grow in our life is they're fed by fear. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about fear? Remember how we defined it? We defined it as a distressing emotion aroused by the anticipation of unknown circumstances. See, the more that I think about the threat versus what God wants me to do, what happens to the threat? It grows, and fear grows, and fear is like me shaking miracle grow on the threat. That the threat is just going to grow and grow and grow and grow, and you know what, th- what the fruit of threat is? Confusion. Confusion. Well, maybe God didn't mean what he said. Or maybe God didn't want me to do that. Yeah, it's too hard. Maybe God didn't want me to do that. Well, maybe God's more concerned about my happiness than my holiness. So he, I know this is what God's word says and the way that I'm living is wrong, but you know, like maybe if I just continue to go after it and you know, I know I, I was convicted of that a couple weeks ago, but you know what's happening? It's the threat that's being fed by the fear And confusion is the fruit that you're bearing. And I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. God is not the author of confusion, but he's the God of peace. That God's not the author of confusion, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. Let's continue reading. So look at what Nehemiah responds, verse 9. And he says, and we prayed to our God. So we're going to pray again. And set a guard as protection against them day and night. Verse 10. And in Judah it was said. Now let me just stop there. So the taunting and the threats are coming from outside of God's people. Now all of a sudden we're going to see what's happening now with the Jews' own people. Look at what it says in verse 10. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. Like they're getting tired. They're getting weak. 
getting frustrated. There is too much rubble. These are people that are Jews. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, so they were listening to the taunting and to the threats. Our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Like these are the threats that we're being told. These are the taunts that we're being told. We better take this seriously. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, where the building was taking place, came from all directions and said to us 10 times look at what they say you must return to us here's a third tactic of the opposition that i see in these verses not just taunting not just threats but critical talk and interesting that it's critical talk no not those from outside but those that are closest to them how many of us have experienced that how many have experienced that when we are committed to do what God has called us to do, what God desires to build in and through us, that oftentimes the opposition comes, the enemy can use those who we're closest to, whether that's our spouse, whether that's our family members, whether that's close friends, whoever it may be, to start putting those thoughts of doubt into our heart. Let me just say this. You know one of the things that we ought not to say is true of us in our households, and especially as husband and wife, is don't counsel each other's flesh. Don't counsel each other's flesh. You know, when you come home and, and, and you know God's called you to do something and you're venting because it hasn't worked out, and here's the reality. Did, let me just step back a minute. Isn't it interesting that opposition doesn't come against the people of Jerusalem until they've committed to do what God wants them to do? And they're sitting there in the rubble for decades upon decades. No opposition seems to be found. But as soon as they're committed, hey, we're going to be a part of what God desires to build in and through us. Now opposition comes. And opposition can actually be used as an indicator that maybe we're doing what God wants us to do. So instead of, as I said, shrinking our view of God, we need to see it as an opportunity. God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. But oftentimes we get caught up in the trap of counseling each other's flesh. Yeah, you're right. I can't believe they said that. Yeah, you're right. I can't believe they did that. What do they think? Yeah, you're right. Man, I'm looking at this. It does seem impossible. It does seem hard. Yeah, it didn't work out the way that I thought it was. And what do we start doing? We start counseling each other's flesh rather than pointing people back to the reality that our God's undefeated. And that's what we see happening with the, with here in Judah is we have people that are supposed to be affirming what God wants to do instead being used by the enemy to get them to doubt. We see that with Peter with Jesus, right? I mean, don't we see that in Matthew 16? Like Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to have to die and in three days later I'll rise again. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Like, all this talk about you dying is a real killjoy. Like, let's talk about something better. And what is Jesus doing? Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's calling the words and the thoughts and the motivations that Peter is uttering, knowing that's coming from the enemy. And we have to watch ourselves that sometimes we can find ourselves being used by the enemy and being opposition 
to something that really, if we're not careful of, can keep someone from doing what God's wanted them to do. Critical talk. Now let's keep reading. It says in verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clan. So here's Nehemiah's response. With their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on that wall, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who surrounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Can we read that together? Read that phrase with me. Our God will fight for us. Believe it. Rely on it. Let that speak to your opposition this morning. Your God will fight for you. And if you're doubting that, I want you to point back to what Jesus Christ has done for you. He fought for you. He won a victory. He won a battle, I should say, and had victory over what you and I could not do on our own. None of us in this room who are children of the King and placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ can read that statement and have an excuse not to believe it. Our God will fight for us. Look at verse 21. So we labored at the work, knowing that God would fight for us We labored at the work, and half of them held the spears in the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, and each kept his weapon as his right hand. I love that about Nehemiah. He doesn't think he's better than anybody else. He says, just as much as God's called you to rebuild these walls, he's called me to do it as well. And so I want to do it in the remainder of our time is I just want to give you four things, four ways that we face opposition that I see in this text, four ways that we face opposition, four ways that we oppose the threats that may be in our mind today. The threats, the words that we may be hearing from from those who may not have a relationship with Christ and are getting us to doubt and getting us to to want to throw in the towel and stall what God desires to build in and through our life that you may have said, God, I know this is what you want me to do. How do we face the, the threats, those unknown circumstances that may harm me or those that I love or may stop what God desires to build in and through me? How do how do I handle those threats or how do I even handle the critical thought? Like, how do I handle those thoughts? 
when, when, when people can fall into the trap to actually counsel my flesh, counsel those doubts. Here's the first way. You fervently pray. You fervently pray. Don't, didn't we see that in the text? We saw that in verse 4. We saw that in verse 5. We see that again in verse 9. And you know, as I read those verses, you know what I saw both this week and what I saw again as I read it just now? is that Nehemiah doesn't really take any time to speak to the opposition. Did you notice that? He doesn't get caught in this, in this debate back and forth with the opposition. He doesn't get caught into, into saying, no, that's not true, and this is true. He doesn't get caught up in that. You know what he does? Instead of talking to the opposition, he talks to God. He says, I'm not going to take all my time talking to the opposition. Instead, I'm going to take time to talk and to pray to the God who's never lost. I'm going to talk to the God who's undefeated. I'm going to talk to him. And I wonder if even as I mentioned that the first way that we face opposition, when I uttered we fervently pray, that some of you said, oh, I was hoping it was something better. If we be honest, like, well, that's obvious. What else? It's been true in my life. See, we oftentimes view prayer as the last resort rather than the primary weapon that we face opposition. I wonder if that's true of us. And let me just read you to some passage of Scripture. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man has what? Has great power as it's working has great power. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit. It's interesting that in Ephesians 6, it talks about put on the whole armor of God, but in the midst of that, it says what we need to do is we need to pray, praying at all times. There's power in that. Hebrews 4.15 and 16 talks about how we have a great high priest who has been tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. And when I understand that Jesus showed me the perfect example of what it looks like to face oppositions, you don't think Jesus faced threats? You don't think Jesus faced tauntings? You don't think, I just mentioned it, that Peter, or that, that Peter didn't give Jesus critical talk to keep Jesus from doing what he knew he should do and praise God because he was perfect, he did it. Now he's tempted in all points like we are. So then what's the call in verse 16? Let us... Then draw to the throne of grace with confidence, believing that we will receive mercy and help in time of need. But so often, we view prayer as the last resort rather than the primary weapon against opposition. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and you've heard other people say this that are part of our fellowship at Harvest, that here's what that looks like, man. We do it daily. Minimum, daily. And we do it out loud. Just counseling someone the other day saying, you know what you need to do in your prayer life? You need to pray out loud. You know what I've found in my life? That when I don't pray out loud, you know what my mind has a tendency to do? Focus on the threats, focus on the taunting, focus on maybe even the critical thought that was said to me by someone that I looked at as a part of this with me. So I pray out loud. 
I pray out loud. And I pray with a list. Because you know something that's beautiful that happens when I pray with a list? When I pray out loud and I pray with a list is that I'm able to write out everything that I'm asking and believing God to do. And it's not just a laundry list of wants, but it's me saying, God, what spiritually do you want to do in me? God, what physically do you want to do in me? God, what do you want to do with my brothers and sisters that I find out of things going on? And I pray with that list. And I'm not saying this to say that I'm someone special because you know what I found out? If I don't do this, my prayer life stinks. And I pray with that list, and the beautiful thing is, is then I can mark next to that list, hey, here's how God intervened in that. Here's how God was victorious in that. Here's how God showed himself undefeated and always winning in this and that situation. I pray daily on my knees with a list out loud on my knees, face down to remind myself, God, You're the God who builds. You're the God that's undefeated. In reality, when I'm taunted and told I'm weak, you know what the reality is? It's true. I am weak. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm weak. Yeah, I said I'm weak, not you to turn to the person and say, you're weak. (laughs) There's a reason why I said it that way. It's a beautiful place to be because it drives us to understand that the primary weapon we have against opposition is to pray. And we see Nehemiah do that. Here's the second thing. I see that in verse 14 and in verse 20. You exercise faith in God's character. Exercise God's faith in God's character. Look at what it says at the beginning of verse 14. Nehemiah says to all of these threats and taunting and critical talk, do not be afraid of them. Nehemiah had to believe that himself to say that. Do not be afraid of them. And look at what he says. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then in verse 20, he says that awesome phrase that I had you say together. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah responded to this opposition with courageous faith. But here's what you need to understand. Nehemiah had to exercise that faith to have it here. And even in the book that we've been already, in the four chapters that we've been in this book, you see Nehemiah exercising his faith. You see him being obedient in Nehemiah 1 to God's calling on his life. That took faith. So he exercised faith. He was obedient. That took faith. And now he has to go before a king who has the power to take his life. You know what he did? He exercised faith again in obedience. And now Nehemiah, now that God has provided the means to build the wall, now he has to go to Jerusalem and he's walking. Remember Nehemiah 2? He's traveling all around on the horse to look at the different walls and he's probably thinking to himself, are you kidding me? This is so much worse than I even imagined. You don't think he had to exercise faith? that God, even though how bad it looks, I know you've called me to this. And then he has to rally the people. And then he faces opposition in Nehemiah 2. Every chapter, his faith is having to be exercised. And the reason why he can respond in the way that he responds here is because he was obedient to what God called him to do every time. And as he did it, his faith grew. Like I've been talking with people even these past few weeks, and they've been telling me things that they're walking through, health things, whatever it may be. And I've been amazed to see their faith in the midst of that. And if I've had a conversation with you, you need to know how encouraged and how the way that you're walking has actually encouraged my faith. That doesn't happen by accident. 
It happens because that person has said, you know what? God has called me to pick this up, and it's his strength working through me, but I'm going to exercise my faith. I'm going to exercise it so it's stronger when the next thing God asks me to be a part of building, that my faith is stronger than what it was. And some of us are at the beginning of our walk with Christ and we're being, what we think are being asked to do something that is so great and what God wants you to understand is, wait a minute, look at who I am, look at my character, believe who I am, believe that I'm undefeated, believe that I never lose, believe that I, my winning streak is a thousand percent every time. Exercise your faith. And for some of us, we can look over the timeline of our life and say, man, praise God. I look back to that time, and that thing was so huge in the moment. But praise God, we were obedient to it, and we stuck to it, and we didn't allow the opposition, listen to the opposition, but we were obedient to what God wanted to do in and through our lives. And we look back then, and that thing that we thought was so huge actually wasn't as big as the thing now that God's asking us to do. But you still have faith to push through. You know why? Because you took the discipline to say, God wants to do a work in and through me, and I'm going to exercise my faith. I'm going to exercise my faith in who God is. Here's the third thing. I see it in the second part of verse 14 and verses 16 and 17. Not just fervently pray, exercise your faith in God's character, but fight for your family. Yeah, fight for your family. And we see that when Nehemiah calls these people, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. Didn't know if you realized this, so maybe this is a reality check for you, but when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you just put a massive target on your back. Now, I don't say that for you to... to be overwhelmed by that and for you to be discouraged by that because praise God, First John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Romans 8 says the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. So God's given us everything that we need to fight this battle with victory because God has ultimately won. Remember? Go to Revelation 21 again. God wins. But every one of us have a massive target on our back. And John 10.10 says the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And what I love that Nehemiah does is, yes, he exercises faith in God's character, and yes, he praises, prays to God and goes to God and sees that as the primary weapon against opposition, but he says, hey, listen, we need to make sure that we're protected. We're going to fight for our families. And it made me look at these verses here in verses 14 and 16 and 17 and say, well, what does it look like for me to fight for my family in the face of opposition? And I think it starts off with me having the right posture just for me to embrace the realities I just said that I'm in a battle. And the enemy just doesn't want to steal to kill and to destroy my life. He also wants to do that to those that I love. And in my context, for me being a husband and a father, that means protecting my family means not just protecting my wife, but also protecting my kids. To have a right posture, to understand what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Man, be sober, be watchful, because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion doing what? Seeking whom he may devour, destroy, rip apart. 
We better embrace the reality and have the right posture that that's what the enemy wants. So are we going to fight for our families? Because when I have the right posture, then all of a sudden I'm going to have the right protection because Nehemiah says, here's how we're going to approach that. Half of my servants are going to work and build and half of them are going to hold spears and shields and bows and coats of mail that we're going to be on guard. Like, Dad, how many of us are saying when we look at our families, man, am I allowing their iPhone or their iPad or whatever it else to consume them and to tell them what's right and wrong? Am I relying on that as the person to watch my kids, to babysit my kids? Or am I taking intentional time to say, how am I as a man, as a dad, pouring into my kids, knowing what they're watching, knowing who they're hanging out with, knowing what they're doing? I'm taking time to invest in my son. I'm taking him out and I'm saying whatever I want to call it, man, I'm going to spend some intentional time with him and see how's your walk with Jesus going. I'm going to take time with my daughters and go out and I'm going to spend time with them and I want to show them what a man of God looks like and I want to show them how it looks to be treated and I want them to see that. I don't want them to get their significance out of a relationship. And we go on and on and on. But I want to have right protection in my home. Because I know the enemy, when he can't get at me, he wants to go for those that he loves. Not just the right posture, but the right protection. Here's the third thing I see in this passage, right priorities. Right priorities. Because look at what Nehemiah says in, in the end of verse 16. He says, the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. So, so the leaders were there to support those that were building the wall. Verse 17 who were building on the wall, those who carried burdens, look at this, were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. That Nehemiah didn't load them down with so much work that it was more than they could handle. Write priorities. I wrote this down, and I want you to write this down. Don't allow what God has called you to lead outside of your home Take priority over what he has called you to lead inside of your home. Don't allow what God has called you to lead outside of your home to take priority over what he has called you to lead inside of your home. I love that Nehemiah says, wait a minute, we have to have the right priorities. We have to have a priority that we're going to protect those that God has entrusted us to care for. And at the same time, we're going to continue the work that God has called us to do. We're going to do... Both of those. And many times what can happen is, is I'm so focused on the work that God has called me to do. And I wonder how many of us guys or ladies are so focused on the work that God has called us to do in the workplace, wherever that may be. And we want to work hard and we want to work in such a way that shows that we're different, that we want to have a strong work ethic and all of those things. But I wonder if we're going so far that if we were to look, we were saying, man, you know, at the same time, I'm not thinking of my family so that the work outside of home is loading them down so much to where they, I'm not properly protecting my family from the enemy coming in. Be totally trans, I'm transparent. I have to ask myself that all the time. All the time. I God, am I available to every other person whenever they ask 
Am I available to those outside of my home in that way to the detriment of being available to those inside of my home? I have to ask myself that all the time. And so do you. I don't care what you do. And I love how Nehemiah takes concern in such a way to say, hey, God's called us to a work, but not, expense, not at the expense of the people who are called to be in it with us. Here's the last thing, and we're done. Focus on the work God's called you to do. Fervently pray. Exercise faith in God's character. Fight for your family. But also focus on what God has called you to do. Because I love what it says in verse 15, that God frustrated their plan. Listen, remember what I said? The opposition is going to try to test God's record, and I'm here to tell you, he'll always lose. It's always going to lose. And I love that Nehemiah attributed that their plan not working wasn't to Nehemiah's genius, but it was to God's genius. It was to God's power, that God frustrated their plan. And because they saw what God did, remember the exercise faith in God's character, what did they do? We all, we all, all returned to the wall, each to his work. Verse 21, we labored at the work. Verse 23, Nehemiah says, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon as his right hand. Remember the critique of all the way back in the first few verses of Nehemiah 4, remember the critique of the wall? Like it's so weak and it's so crummy that a fox could jump on it and tear it down. Archaeologists actually found remnants of Nehemiah's wall. It was nine feet thick. See, the, Nehemiah, the, the, the enemy wants you to believe that God can't do a work in you that God can't do a work through you. But when you have those doubts, I want you to take those doubts and allow God's record to speak to them. He's undefeated. He's undefeated. And maybe you're still on the fence, and if you are, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen, but if you do have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans 8. And I encourage you, even if you want to write Romans 8 next to chapter 4, Romans 8, verses 31 through thirty. Nine, and we here in a few moments are going to take part in communion. Communion being a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his life and his death and his resurrection. Because I can't think of a better way for us to close out this service today in this reality that we serve a God who builds, but it's a God who's also undefeated, than to take part in communion to remind us that the greatest example that God is undefeated is Jesus Christ. So look at Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Paul goes to this Romans 8 chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. He says in verse 1, What then shall we say to these things, like these amazing realities that start out in verse 1, where Paul says there's no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus, like you've been forgiven. Verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Speak that to the opposition today. Speak that to the enemy today that's taunting you, that's making you think of threats, that's the critical talk that may be coming at you from even those that you thought were for you. 
God's for you. Who can be against you? Verse 32, who did not spare his own son, but gave himself for us all. How will he not also with us graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Like who has the right to bring a charge against you? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was indeed interceding for us. In other words, he's victorious. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? In other words, shall any opposition separate you from the love that Jesus has for you? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. You know what I love? It doesn't say, in all these things, we're conquerors. It says we're more than conquerors. Like, how good is that? We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here's what we can be sure of. Here's what's our reality. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The God who builds is a God who is undefeated. You win. Because Christ won. 